0: Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week you can put the kettle on, get a biscuit, grab a blanket, and get cosy. As I warned you, I'm having an odd warm hearted moment in the Halloween aftermath, and this week's guest and book reflect that. The guest is Mark Stay, and he's someone whose introduction takes a little longer than most. He's a man of many talents a screenwriter with a penchant for the darker side of cinema. He's a host of the quite fantastic bestseller experiment podcast in which he speaks, like myself, to a famous writer each week seeking advice on writing a novel of his own. As you'll hear, that podcast is one of the major inspirations behind me starting this one. But Mark's also an author who dabbles in the strange hinterland between folktale, folk horror and folksy charm. Each of these is present to varying degrees in his ongoing series, The Witches of Woodville. So far, the series is a quaint, beautifully realised, fantastical version of an English village in the 1940s, when war is on the horizon and magic is in the air, but the magic is far from trouble-free. Book one is called The Crow Folk, and the sequel, Babes in the Wood, is out now from Simon & Schuster. In the following conversation, Mark gets us up to speed with where his wartime witches are and what dark forces they're fighting. But we also discuss the perils of nostalgia in the modern day. We try for a working definition of folk horror, and we get deep into the sheer nightmare fuel that was 80s kids TV in Britain. So, off we go to a perfect little village that maybe never was, the sun is shining, the bells are ringing, but the demons are loose. Let's talk Scared.
1: Well hi Mark and welcome to Talking Scared. How the devil are you? I'm very good all the better for speaking to you today.
0: Oh how how lovely you! This great polite British starts the conversation. Uh, Whereabouts are you?
1: I'm in the middle of nowhere in northern Kent. Uh, So if I stand on tiptoes, I can see the Reculver Towers, which are supposed to be haunted, and uh, I can see the the sort of the Thames Estuary and the North Sea. So it's it's nice here. It's nice and quiet.
0: Oh, nice! Is it as bleak as where I am today? (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, there's a blue sky here today actually it's lovely and it's nice and autumnal so yeah it's nice
0: that is the north south divide in a nutshell it's like <laughs> wuthering heights where i am that the, 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 the rain is going sideways and my dog <laughs> nearly blew like a kite before so yeah the british winter has started um the heating is on which is a big day in any british household when the, it is. the, the, it the is. day the heating goes on for the winter so i mean actually speaking of british this conversation Marks, I think an all-time record for this show of three British guests in a row. Ooh. Maybe there is something in this English literature thing after all.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and, and and speaking of English literature and etc., we're discussing your your ongoing book series. There are there are two volumes in it so far: the Witches of Woodville, and that second volume, Babes in the Wood, is out now. Mm. And I mention English because, above all else, these books are joyful celebrations of Englishness. (laughs) Now, considering recent political upheavals, the term Englishness has become a touch stained with negative nationalistic connotations. And I I will get to that as we go on, because I feel like your books are not only free of that, they read like an active countermeasure to that kind of thinking.
1: (laughs) That's just... Yes,
0: I'm getting by, beyond accepted. myself. I'm, I'm already <laughs> jumping in too soon. Let's save that hot topic for the meat of the conversation. Start us <laughs> off with an introduction to Woodville, its witches, and where we are with this series.
1: Well, I always pitch the Witches of Woodville series as, uh, as like the last ten minutes of Bedknobs and Broomsticks. You know, you've know, you got the home front, you've got a little uh, English village, you've got witches and Nazis and World War Two going on overhead, um, but it's about a young girl called Faye, who is 17, sort of on the cusp of adulthood, and she discovers uh, a book left by her mother, who was a witch, with all kinds of strange rituals, and she discovers that she might be able to do magic. And as the books go on, they're about Faye's sort of blossoming magical skills. As you've got the war going on over there, you've also got the supernatural war going on around this village and and the wood next to it. And for me, it's just a lovely precinct where anything can happen. You know, anything can come tumbling out of the wood to create a problem for Faye and her fellow witches and the villagers. And uh, it's been tonally... It's. I mean, the word "cozy" has been used, but then you say that we've got demons and uh, we've got death and we've got people being torn to pieces. So you know, it's not all cozy stuff. It's some. Um, there's there's a sort of dark underbelly to it as well.
0: Well, yeah, that's a great place to start actually, because as you say, witches, demons, dark magic. In the second volume, especially, there's a whole lot of very real human dreadfulness. There's Nazis and anti-Semitism and the the very real shadow of of war and human torment just over the the water. Um, And that all sounds like a ripe old mix for a truly horrific novel. But you have gone a different route. And you've mentioned Cozy. How did you come to the decision, I suppose, to approach your story in that tone and that texture?
1: I'm a big fan of Terry Pratchett. And I always admired the way that he tackled the most kind of hefty topics with that sleight of hand where he had you chuckling all the way through as well and that was that was the challenge as you say there's there are things like anti-semitism in this as well i mean the one of the villains in babes of the wood came out of my thought which was what if bertie Wooster was a nazi sympathizer because i have a horrible <laughs> feeling he might well have been all those idiots at the drones club would have led, led him astray you know and taken him down a very bad and dark route and um so you know, it, it comes out of little ideas like that. And it's just it's the kind of book I would want to read. And I didn't really see it anywhere else. So, you know, this this idea that you can you can dip into the war, you can dip into anti-Semitism and the Holocaust and things like this, but explore it in a way where the characters feel real, are a little bit heightened, maybe. Um, but also, you can reveal kind of truths in that as well. And comedy is really good for that comedy. And and a light touch can be quite subversive when you want it to be.
0: Did you have a readership in mind when you wrote? I ask because at times these books feel like perfectly kind of wholesome tales, potentially for young readers. But then as well as these dark themes like anti-Semitism and kind of a real riff on what is considered an outsider is a major theme as well. As well as that, you've got these kind of knowing sides of bawdy sexual jokes and more adult <laughs> allusions. Did you have a mindset of thinking I'm writing for a particular audience?
1: Um, I think it helps, and the sort of the Terry Pratchett audience was was very much in my mind kids i don't know kids don't have any problem with that kind of stuff it's always grown-ups who have a problem with that, <laughs> <laughs> that material you know when we're kids we are so open uh, to these ideas and and we we gobble them up and we devour a story in a way you know I, I don't know about you but between the ages of 12 and about 21 i probably read more in those years than i have for the rest of my life and i'm you know i'm, I'm nearly 50 now and it's uh if if I need to read fiction, I need to put aside special time for it, you know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, yeah, it was um, very much that Terry Pratchett readership uh, in mind. Robert Rankin's another author that I love as well. His his Brentford trilogy uh, was very much in mind in that he took an ordinary place like Brentford and had a lot of weird shit happen there. <laughs> and, um, and some very dark stuff happened there as well, all done with a kind of light, jolly tone to it too. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Pratchett because I was, I was kind of listing
0: people who I, I can feel in the background of these stories. And there's always something right. a little bit presumptuous about a reader telling the author who who he thinks their inspirations are. But I also have this thing about how British speculative writing doesn't seem to exist in a singular trajectory in the way that, some, that American speculative writing does. It always seems a little bit weird. British fantasy and sci-fi it always seems a little bit kind of bricolage and all over the place. So I always like, yeah. when I read a new book, I like to try and think, okay, what what's in the background of this? And Pratchett is obvious, but for me, there's a lot of Neil Gaiman and even some right. J.K. Rowling and in, in that lovely mundane Englishness that's juxtaposed with the fantastic, but then it also goes back for me to an older heritage, people like Roald Dahl and and Jill Murphy and Enid Blyton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I'm throwing a lot of names at you there, but am I right or wrong in putting you in that very offbeat, zigzagging English tradition?
1: No, I think you're right. I know, I only ever read one Blight and it was a secret seven and it was really racist about gypsies. And even at 10 years old, I read that and think, I thought, this is this is all kinds of wrong. <laughs> um, the other thing you got to account, I mean, I am of a certain age, I'm Generation X, and we grew up being totally scarred by public information films with children drowning in deep ponds and being hit by trains. I grew up re-watching Wurzel Gummage every weekend with the scarecrows and things like Dennis Potter. There's a t- terrifying scarecrow in the singing detective. Uh, the Crow Folk features scarecrows for listeners who, who don't know. And of course I grew up in the the you know in the eighties thinking that any second now we're gonna be wiped out by nuclear <laughs> war, which was a really, really very real expectation. Um so I I, I sort of grew up on edge you know but we all had a laugh about it as well so um you know it's not just the books there's films there's artwork you know the 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 second book you know features um quite modernist artwork in there as well by people like hannah hock um so yeah that's it's it's like peeking inside my warped little brain
0: <laughs> you mentioned some of the things you mentioned there and, and that brings us to to folk horror because I think these books, as, as whimsical as they are, owe a deep debt to the British folk horror tradition.
1: Definitely. Yeah, no question whatsoever. Again, you know, I grew up watching, you know, The Wicker Man, Blood and Satan's Claw. I'm very, very aware of that whole side of things. What's fascinating is once you start digging into that, how modern so much of that is. A lot of that only comes from, you know, the last 100, 150 years, maybe so it's quite a lot of it makes out that it's more ancient than it actually is um but it is all fascinating all the same and then i moved here to the middle of nowhere in kent uh which had a big effect you know i I was born in london grew up in the suburbs and then i move out to you know farmland here basically but farmland that is scattered with relics of the war um and so i've got this thing where i'm much more aware of the seasons than I ever was, because it's right outside my window. My wife's a gardener, so I, you know I see all I see all kind of interesting things growing right outside my window. When I go for a walk, you know I'll, I'll be aware of berries and birds, and and then there'll be a concrete pillbox, you know, left over from the war. So all of these things have been swimming around in my brain, you know, the last couple of years, and 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 ended up in the book. But the the folk horror thing is is always fascinating to me because they they are very quintessentially. There is a an Englishness about them. I'm, you know, my dad's side of the family are from London. My mum's side of the family are from Ireland. So I've got that sort of Celtic Irish thing. I, you know, I was told ghost stories when I was a child by Irish uncles, and, you know, so it's some. Um, these books are very much a sum of all my parts.
0: Well, I'm really chuffed that you. God, I'm slipping into my English slang there. I normally do this whole kind of <laughs> transatlantic thing where I don't use words <laughs> like chuffed dear listeners chuffed means like pleasantly pleased
1: well again if you read my books if you read my books there's loads of i i deliberately put as many Englishisms, you know uh, as as i could uh, you know and Blimineck, blinking flip you know blimey although all, all those kind of words that I, I suppose they might have picked up from harry potter if they're fans some of those or whatever but yeah i i'd don't make too many concessions to, <laughs> no, I, to the international I, I, actually, I actually
0: noticed that. I, I quite enjoyed mm. that. Some of the, like, saying things like, oh, that'll do for starters and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. But but just dwelling on folk horror for a minute, you said something there that kind of made my ears prick up. You said that, you know, folk horror has a particular kind of real Englishness about it. And mm. that is interesting because someone very recently wrote to me on Twitter about their annoyance With the way that folk horror is used often as a term to indicate a specific brand of of English, perhaps British, perhaps even Western European storytelling, and they were Mm. they they were from the uh, Indian subcontinent, and they were saying that they wanted the term to be widened to incorporate other folklores. Now, I can entirely see their point. I've been banging on at length Mm. about how horror needs to absorb uh, and take on board other folklores and other myths and other horrors, because it's going to exhaust itself otherwise. But I also do think that when we start talking about folk horror with a capital F and a capital H, it almost becomes a kind of proper noun that I think denotes a very specific British, English, whatever perspective.
1: Well, I think the the person who got in touch with you makes an interesting point. I mean, there is this um, absolutely every culture in the world has their fairy folk, has their little people, has their hairy monster in the woods, has their wild mountain man or whatever. You know, the, these things are are quite common across the world, just as the you know the flood story is, and a lot of the, the mm-hmm. you know the religions are based on very similar ideas. Um, so yeah, I guess I guess I'm coming from a a, a very you know, white privileged uh background there where that's that's just my catch all term for the kind of folk horror that I grew up with. And yeah, I think there is room, absolutely room, to to welcome on all kinds of I mean I you know, I love the studio Ghibli movies and there's a lot of Japanese folk horror in those and you know you see Korean horror movies as well. You see a lot of that folk horror. I mean watching something like Squid Game recently and those games, some some of those games we knew the rules, some of them were completely new to us and had to be explained. And it's all the more fascinating for that. So yeah, I, I guess I guess they haven't, you know, an absolutely valid point that we need to think a little bit wider. But I can only speak from my own experience, and that—that that is very much that, um, like you say, with a capital F and capital H folk horror, where we're 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 talking about a particular brand of wicker man style terror, uh, sort of a uh, pagan dread uh, that that you know things will spring from nature or uh, things will claim you or there are things in the wood there are things there are plants you'll eat you'll dig up things you know there's there's a commonality there and i find that again having moved out here to the middle of nowhere i find that all the more fascinating exactly that
0: essentially i mean i always think about is it is it pender's Fen, the old bbc um very weird psychogeographic folk horror Special, I think it's called Penders Fen or something like that. I've never check... saw
1: it, but I have, I have heard of it. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah I'll, I'll check it out and put it in the show notes. I have to do. I have to correct myself in the uh, the afterwards. These <laughs> interviews are often, uh, but that to me is the that and the Wicker Men are the two. You know, North yeah. Star, Children whatever. of
1: the Stones, and things yes, like that, stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, but also, also Bagpus OK, <laughs> bloody Bagpuss. Right? I don't know about you, but I grew up watching and loving Bagpuss, full of old folk songs with little stories, with these little dark twists. And then you've got these wooden creatures coming to life and singing. And, and you know, so again, going back to that thing, my whole childhood was peppered with this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's all kind of coming out now. I only now really appreciate it for, for what it is. But, yeah, it's uh, British television again for people of a certain age was threaded with some really weird stuff
0: yep yeah, i was born in 83 so i was treated to like the late 80s early 90s kids tv and at the risk of losing my entire international audience grot bags still haunts my dreams um, <laughs> this this weird green witch that was a thing on t- on british kids tv for a while
1: I see. I see your grot bags and, and raise you, Fenella from Chilton and the Wheelies.
0: <laughs> I don't know, know or, that one.
1: But I... Oh, you've got to look up Chilton and the Wheelies. Chilton, uh, which was um, about this uh, community of people who go around on wheels and they meet, uh, and it's Cosgrove Hall who did Danger Mouse and stuff like that later on, and they meet uh, a, a friendly dragon called Chilton, but there's a witch called Fenella, uh, who is this Welsh Welsh witch who, you know, hates him and is always out to destroy him. And to save an animation, she didn't walk about. She just sank into the ground and then popped up out of the ground elsewhere. <laughs> it was absolutely terrifying. The idea that she could just pop out of the ground in any in any place. And and she had this, um, she had a telescope which spoke, which was German, which would say, oh yeah, Jordan is here with Surrealis again. And then she'd be yelling at him in Welsh. You're piece of claptrap, you're. And, you know, so you just have, it was just the weirdest, weirdest childhood, and again, it's it's all there in in my book. You know, this whole mal- this is great. This is like therapy, Neil. This is I'm really enjoying this. There's a
0: fantastic creepy pasta that has become kind of its own cultural phenomenon now. It's called Candle Cove. I don't know if you're aware of this. Um, the, the the horror TV mm. show Channel Zero actually turned it into a, a series of the show, and and the entire premise of Candle Cove. Is that these kids are reminiscing about this kids' TV show they saw when they were children that just gets darker and darker in their memories until right. so it's just basically puppets screaming, and that reads as a horror story <laughs> if you haven't grown <laughs> up so in the eighties on eighties <laughs> British TV. In which, you know, it's pretty benign compared to some of the stuff that oh. I I was subjected to straight after school with a, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. with a bourbon biscuit. Anyway. Anyway, I mean, to go back to to briefly to briefly kind of like close off that thing about folk horror. So I don't want to be I don't want to leave that out there as if I'm in some way trying to to downplay other cultures' folk stories. What what, what I'm basically saying is, I think as just as we would say Southern Gothic to refer to a very particular America's story, you know, every nation has a South. When we say Southern Gothic, we mean uh, the antebellum South of America. I would say that folk horror, with a capital F, in some ways can be the preserve of a particular British um or western European horror story. And that that but is that that is completely without downplaying other cultures. It's just t- yeah. basically yeah. I'm going to a bit of terminological wank here. <laughs> we'll just move on. <laughs> I mean, I will say for anyone listening who is potentially gritting their teeth, anyone north of the border who's getting annoyed at my use of English rather than British so far in this conversation. Please know that I'm not being thoughtless. I do consider myself British, not English. That is an intentional distinction Mm. because it seems to me that the witches of Woodville books are about a particular ideal or myth of specifically English identity.
1: Yeah. 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 You know, the idea of that, that perfect village where Mm. um, it's a small community, everyone knows one another. Uh, I mean, it's, I'm, I don't know if it ever really existed, to be honest, which is, you know, one of the big fantasy elements of this. Um, but I, I wanted a, I, I wanted that community where, you know, there's a butchers, the bakers, there's, you know, the, there's a church that bell ringing is very important, particularly in the first book as a sort of a, a weapon against demonic forces. all uh, taking something nice and cosy and then inverting it and making it somehow a little bit dark and dangerous. That was... That was a big appeal to me.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that it may never have existed because over on the Patreon recently, I've done this um, long, elaborate history of of the gothic and horror um, for Patreon listeners. Just a little plug there. Uh, feel free to subscribe, any and all. Um, but I, I talked to a, a professor, Roger Luckhurst, and we're talking about the history of Gothic. And and we we're saying that horror, in all its guises, is often predicated on nostalgia for a past that didn't exist.
1: Mm. So
0: to endlessly re yeah, my yeah, favourite yeah. book, It!, the, the 60s, small town America of it, didn't exist. Just as you know, yeah. the 1800s that we often write about now in Victorian novels didn't exist. And and I, it's a bit of a big big bugbear for me, nostalgia, because nostalgia is often seen as a really benign thing, but I think it can be quite a dangerous weapon in the wrong hands.
1: Oh, well, you just, uh, just have to look at Brexit. I mean, you know, that, that was all predicated on, well, weren't things better before we went into Europe? No, they bloody weren't. Yeah. And, and, you know, so, and, and there's a very kind of dad's army nostalgia in, in the crow folk in the, oh, we all stuck together. But I'm very, very clear to make sure that all the way through this, we have people from all over Europe being featured in this, you know, we weren't standing on our own. We had, and the third book I'm working on at the moment has a the ghost of a Polish fighter pilot in there as as well, Hurricane Pilot. So I was very keen to take that nostalgic, cosy uh, view that we have of the home front and the Second World War and just gently subvert it. I love, you know, Tim Burton does the same thing with the white picket fence and mm-hmm. I'd like to do it with the cosy English village. This This idea that, Oh, there was never anything bad going on. They, it totally was, you know. During the blackouts, crime went through the roof. You know, there all sorts of terrible things were going on. Where, yes, there was rationing, but there was also a black market as well. So, you know, I've got a in the first book, I've got a poacher who breaks every rule going, and he's definitely the kind of person that you know, had he lived long enough would have voted for Brexit. Um, so, uh, but also, I. You know, at the end of that story, Faye says, if we'd have listened to him, if we'd have had a conversation with him, maybe things wouldn't have gone so bad. So there's also this thing, we can't just write people off. We can't just pretend people don't exist because we don't agree with their opinions. So, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of um, dark and underhand stuff going on that I, I have fun subverting.
0: I literally underlined that passage about having the conversation with the poacher because I thought it, right. it stood as as a bit yeah <laughs> it, it it shone out as a bit of a of a comment and I'm going to ask you a question about that in a moment but to return to this nostalgia thing for a second just so that people mm. fully understand your book does nostalgia right. I ha- right. I have the. I I have this big, like, grand unified thesis, which basically blames all the ills of the modern world on Downton Abbey.
1: Yes, yes, I'm with you on that.
0: <laughs> in my th- in my theory, Downton Abbey was just kool aid for the the the, the, the really far right. Reached to the Brexit mob. It was this idea that weren't things yeah, better yeah. when we had an empire and people knew their place. And one of the most horrifying things I ever saw, <laughs> I went into a library in Glasgow of all places when I used to live there. And there was a Downton Abbey cookbook, which was split into two sections. You see, you could buy this fucking thing and it was split into two sections. <laughs> the first half was food for us and food for them.
1: <gasps>
0: oh. And us was very much the people downstairs doing the mopping up. So it's it's literally, that entire show, as far as I'm concerned, was a Trojan horse in culture <laughs> to put us all in our place and make us duff our caps and think, wasn't it great when we, when we had rules? So yeah, Downton Abbey is to blame for everything that's gone wrong. It's, you, I can probably draw a link between Downton Abbey and Trump. Your book, however... Doesn't do that. <laughs> I
1: mean, we've got... I, I, I mean, you know, if you've grown up in Britain, we've always had to live with this nonsense, you know. I mean, I growing up, we had Upstairs, Downstairs. I mean, it's there in the title, you know, Us and Them. It's one of the reasons I, I, I resisted making Faye a posh clever girl. I wanted to make her a pub landlord's daughter. I wanted to make her kind of working class. And I wanted to make her smart enough and impertinent enough to ask difficult questions. Cause I I, I do love that thing when uh the the, the the working classes meet the upper classes and have no deference whatsoever. Mm. I did um I did a project for the Duchess of Northumberland years ago, about ten or eleven years ago. And we mostly Conversed over email, and to me, she was Jane, dear Jane, blah 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 blah. And we'd go back and forth. Then I went up to um, uh, the castle to Annick Castle to meet her. And of course, as I'm walking around, everyone's going, Your Grace, Your Grace, and they're all bowing and curtsying. And uh there's a part of me thinking, Oh God, am I gonna have to call her Your Grace? And I never did. And I got booted off the project not long after. <laughs> but, you know, that's what I want with Faye. I mean, there's, there's, she meets a lord and lady in the second book and she doesn't know how to greet them. So she just goes, her," You know, so, <laughs> which comes from the Asterix books as well. You know, chief vital statistics. Whenever he meets the Romans, he's on his shield. He just goes, watcha. So that's where that comes from. So, yeah, there's. Um, I, I I definitely wanted to make her work in class and, and not, kowtow to any of the usual bullshit that you get with the class system in this country and that she is forthright to absolutely everyone and that you know one of the things people forget about the the upper classes in uh, just before the second world war is they were already a chuck their lot in with hitler they mm-hmm. they were very very happy to 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 You know, uh, step on. You know, most of them were to sort of, you know, because half of them were blooming German anyway. So um, by by, you know, by family or by relation. So um, yeah, I I definitely wanted to to have some fun with that, which I did. And like you, I've never I've never really liked the British upper class costume drama. I worked in a video store when I was a teenager. I remember watching um, one of the uh, Howard's End. Howard's End, and there's a working, a laughably working class character in that. And um, a few years later, I saw a Harry Enfield sort of spoof of it, where some you know, working class chap comes in and says, "Hello, I'm poor, I'm afraid," which has always <laughs> been, you know, the the because f- these films are made by posh people for posh people, and whenever you see the working classes, they're kind of either it's a grim, uh, miserable existence, or they're you know they're some kind of servant. Uh, kowtowing to their betters. And that's the thing I i definitely didn't want with Faye. I didn't want her, you know, I, I've put her in with um, Toffs, uh, but uh, she won't have any of their nonsense, which is uh, where I stand.
0: Well, this is what's lovely about this 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 village, Woodville, because whether it's real, whether it ever existed, however, however far from the reality mm-hmm. of a 40s you know, English village it may be, it is a nice place to spend time because it's this very egalitarian space. Everyone is kind of judged on their merits. Everyone's got a part to play. It's, it's kind of, I won't say communism, but communalism. Everyone kind of puts their <laughs> their bit in, you know. Um, and, and you're quite eager to really include some some overt progressive politics. Like, you know, there's, there's yes. an ageing couple of, of gay men, who you, you know the, the narrative says overtly everyone kind of knows, but no one minds, you know, and stuff like that. And um, yeah, and and then the whole treatment in the second book, the story is about three uh, German Jewish children who who are transported to to Woodville for for succor from the war. And and one of the really heartwarming parts is the way that the village as a whole comes round to them and o- overlooks their their um, early prejudice because they see the the internal worth of these kids one in, in one case through the fact that you can play chess really well um yeah was it was it always for you a vehicle to kind of i don't know showcase what society could be i suppose
1: i think it's what society is to be honest there there are more good people than bad this this is my big thing i mean you know if you sit and doom scroll through twitter and watch 24-hour news you 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 would think that everyone is just an absolute shit out to get each other but in my experience by talking to people by having conversations with people i generally find that overall people are good people are good by default and they will try and do good things there's a there, there is a moment at the beginning of the second book where this crowd this crowd of villagers hears german voices and immediately the mob that kind of mob mentality turns against them. And then Faye puts herself between herself and the children. And she says, they're not, they're not, they're not German. They're Jewish. And there's this little moment where the crowd goes, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, (laughs) but when she explains it to them, they're like, oh, oh, okay. Okay. And then the, you know, and then as individuals, they're all absolutely fine. But yeah, there is a kind of a mob mentality, which, uh, makes people kind of dumb but i think if you if you just have a conversation with someone uh you'll 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 find they're actually you know just as complex as as everyone else so uh yeah i i mean i wouldn't want it to sound like uh these are you know great political treaties um, which they're not, um, but they wherever there's an opportunity to subvert something, to take something that we just assume, oh, that didn't happen in the war, or that did happen in the war, I'm always looking, and there are always historical, you know, I've done my research, there are always examples uh, to, to, to show that this sort of thing did go on. So people did know that there were gay couples living amongst them, but they just never spoke about it because they knew it was illegal. Um, but yeah, you look at uh, one of the best. I mean, I, I read a lot of local history books, which are great at details. There's a book called Nella Last's War, which uh, she famously uh, was part of the Mass Observation Project, where she kept a diary, and this was all through the war, and then she went on through the 50s as well, and she just talks about the the day to day kind of drudgery and the banality of fear during the war as well. The fact that you knew a bomb could be dropped on you at any minute now, but she still sort of got on with it, but the fear was still there. And there was a kind of resentment as well at the way other, other people lived sometimes a resentment at the fact that they had to go through this, but also, you know, you do things for your neighbours, you know, you're not doffing your cap to the king and queen and the prime minister or Churchill all the time, you weren't doing it necessarily for Churchill, but you would do it for your neighbours, you would help your neighbours out, because these were the people you saw every day in your community. And it didn't really matter what their background was, because they were any kind of familiarity, if you, you know, if you live next door to people from a different culture, you're going to learn so much about that culture, which is, you know, which is which is why it's such a good thing to mingle and meet other people and and just learn about each other and have those conversations, which is what I'm I'm always keen to bring into these books.
0: Well, yeah, and I wrote as I say, I I noted down that comment about if we just had a conversation with him, we may have learned something, you know, both ways. But there's there's other elements of both of these stories, both the Crow Folk and Babes in the Woods, where I'm not sure whether I'm imposing modern political commentary, or whether it is there. But, for example, in the first story, Pumpkinhead, this this demon who controls his literally woolly-headed followers <laughs> through propaganda <laughs> and through fake news. And it's not lost on me that because he's po- called Pumpkinhead, he's got a big orange head. Um, and then in Babes in the Wood, you have this conversation about society in which one character says that what you have to remember is that the good stuff doesn't sell newspapers. So you hardly hear about it. It's only when things go bad that we're interested. Are you kind of lacing through your, I don't know your, your state of the world thoughts in these books?
1: (laughs) Is it a vehicle for that? It's not always conscious. I mean, the, the Trump pumpkin head thing only occurred to me after I finished it. But, but frankly, there's there's a great song by xtc called peter pumpkinhead which is about a great leader who's actually quite positive he's more of a jesus figure in their song who um who tries to gather everyone together and and do great things and then he has a downfall so that was in my head when i was writing it as well um and i wanted to make him very charming very erudite which isn't trump you know very intelligent and very manipulative um, so yeah, it's a combination of things. These, these things can't help but leak into the story. They, they will be a product of their time and, and, and of my thinking, but the idea that I sort of, you know, click my biro and go, okay, today we are going to write about Brexit. Yeah. I couldn't imagine anything more dull and boring as a premise, you know, anything more designed to put people off reading the bloody thing. It's, um, it can't help but seep through, I don't think. And, uh, Being, you know, a bit of an old lefty, there's going to be a certain kind of tone to it.
0: Yeah. I'm just quite aware now that this is the second time in two weeks I've asked an author if the orange-headed character in the story is in <laughs> a lampoon of Trump. I spoke to Kim Newman last week and I asked him pretty much exactly the oh. same question. Listeners, I promise to stop trying to spot orange headed people in books. I, I won't keep doing that. Um, just th- this one seemed too ripe not to, not to pluck. Um, yeah. So we've talked a lot here, actually we, we've gone on about the idealized nature of this world and, and the positive stuff. And and that's a nice change for a show in which we dwell in the dark and dreary a lot of the time. Um These are charming, cheerful, optimistic stories, but this is a horror-focused podcast, and I don't want to give the idea that there's no sort of nastiness in your work. Um, One of the things that works so well about both of these books is these surprising moments of horror that just come out of nowhere, and they can be either emphatic, as in there's a rampage of a quite terrifying demon in the second book. or or in the first book, um, the eventual fate of the Scarecrows, um, I won't spoil it, but their eventual fate, I was really kind of on the back foot by how saddened I was at the end of that first novel. Um, Are you keen to ensure there is a genuine darkness underneath all this whimsy and wonder?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's a part of our lives as well. You know, there is... um... There is there is darkness all around. There is death all around. There are terrible things that happen. Um, but you know, if we face them together with our friends and neighbours, then we can either ward them off or we can ride them out and cope with them. You know, v- the theme of the second book, "Babes in the Wood," is very much "this too shall pass," and that was written largely during the first lockdown, where there's a you know very uncertain world, but. I just kept telling myself, you've had Mark Kermode on the show, you know, who you know his mantra from uh, mm-hmm. from the the Wittertainment show, which is this two shall pass, and that is that is very much um my mantra too. You know, there there will be good times, there will be bad times, and you just gotta roll the rope, you know, sit on the roller coaster. But yeah, there are, you know again, this idea of the perfect village, English village, the facade, but there is always something dodgy going on underneath so um so yeah i'm uh I'm, I'm always keen to play with that kind of stuff i mean you know the thing is the 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 stuff i write for the screen is kind of more out and out horror whereas woodville is is kind of my happy cozy place that i go to but you know there will always be as we had you know growing up watching those strange children's programs, there will always be a slight edge to them. There will always be something just in the shadows, just out the corner of your eye, uh, which um, which will give you nightmares, hopefully.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and, and it, it really felt like the second book was much darker in tone than the first one. Certainly the stakes, the actual, the human stakes and the, the human horror was, was much more profound. Is that... An ongoing trend. Is it going to be even darker next time?
1: Um, it's funny. I just finished the third book, and I, I don't know. That has more uh, of an adventure tone, um, but there is uh, there there are definitely moments of darkness in it. Uh, yet the book after that, the fourth book, um, gets very dark, very very dark. Uh, there's some serious stuff in there about the fact that, you know, we train people to kill and send them off to fight. When they come home, what can we, what do we do with them? So that's that's quite heavy going. <laughs> Excellent. Um, but, you know, I I don't want to, I don't want to go down a trajectory of darker and darker and darker because, I mean, where do you, you know, It's not you don't want it to be a race to the bottom. You need to have contrast. You need to have a bit of light and shade. And um, I think one of the things people like about these books that, you know, from the feedback I've had, is that good does triumph over evil in these. And, you know, we're talking about the Second World War. That is ultimately, you know, what happened in a way. Um, So uh, uh, and that kind of togetherness, that kind of community feel is is important to me as well. So um, but, yeah, it's always there. It never goes away. There's always going to be some kind of, you know, dark underbelly to, to deal with.
0: So you mentioned you've written the fourth book, or you're writing the fourth book. I mean, do you have an end game for these?
1: I've written the third one. The fourth one, I've um, I'm just pitching to my agent and publisher. Actually, I do. I do have an idea of how it all ends. And funnily enough, that doesn't end well. Um,
0: <laughs> oh, oh good. You heard it here first. You know, so-,
1: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I. Uh, but anyway, we'll wait and see. I mean, my. My dream would be to be allowed to continue to write these right to the end of the war. Um, and uh, well,
0: that's what I was hoping. Yeah. Really, that's that's mm. I was hoping to see the Fuhrer get a right good punch from uh, Vera three trees, <laughs> five trees. Um,
1: yeah, that would be fun. That would be fun. Yeah.
0: But um, uh, yeah, y- you mentioned the your kind of movie work and I'll I'm gonna move on move on to that now. Before I do though, uh because you just mentioned Mark Kermode and his Wittertainment program yes. uh for listeners who don't know, uh Mark Kermode's Wittertainment program is the benign cult that I mentioned in that episode. It's a very, very long running um movie review show that runs here in the UK. Um are you a listener of it, Mark?
1: Uh, I am a member of the church. Yes, I am.
0: You are right because I noticed a line in this book where you actually use the phrase tinksy tongue <laughs> fruit," and I wondered if it was a reference.
1: Oh, it is absolutely. Uh, there's a couple of others as well. If you if you look very very closely, I mean. It, uh, Rumour has it that the Queen Mother used to toast uh when she had a gin or whatever she say tonk tonkle fruit and down with the Nazis and i've uh, one of the witches misses Teach used the same phrase it's my shameless effort to get the book on the Simon Mayo show and get some sales in, basically um yeah. but no it was uh, it was just uh which was just one of those fun phrases there's a couple of others as well in there though as well
0: well I mean that's an actually quite a nice segue from um to your your movie stuff because. Um, As well as the books, you've got an imminent kind of cinematic project, which I believe is called Unwelcome.
1: Yes. Uh, Unwelcome is coming probably February, March next year. Uh, And it's directed by John Wright, who probably his best known film is Grabbers, sort of Irish monster movie. And um, we also work together on a film called Robot Overlords. And Unwelcome is about a couple, Maya and Jamie, who have a terrible experience in their London flat. Uh, a home invasion, and they move. They they manage to inherit a house on the coast of uh, west coast of Ireland, and in that house is, you know, uh, at the bottom of the house is a garden, uh, and then there's a wall, and then there's a door, and there's a hole in the wall, and that's where you leave an offering for the far darig who also known as the red caps and uh, in Irish mythology, the red caps are fairly playful and pranksterish in our story. They're kind of a whole lot more aggressive and violent and terrifying. And it's about uh, this couple and, and what goes horribly wrong when they don't leave an offering for these, uh, these little creatures.
0: So I watched the trailer and I will put the trailer in the show notes for everyone else to, to watch. And what I loved was two things. One, Cole Meany is in the film, and I'll I'll watch oh, yes. anything with Cole Meany in it because, well, because, um, and also I really yeah. like the way that it was shot. It it it's shot in this really quite heightened, almost fairy tale lighting, um, yeah. which looks quite yeah. original, and it it really does give it a, a sort of ambiance of its own. But how does this sit alongside the tone of? of the crow falcon babes in the wood is it, is it darker
1: much darker yeah <laughs> it really is i mean i'm i'm uh, the, the credit is i've got the sole uh screenwriting credit but i wrote the story with uh john wright the director so we get a shared story credit and um it came out of conversations we had about violence and the fact that we're both pacifists But we've, you know, we've come up in a sort of working class background where, you know, you've seen violence. We've both got working class dads who can, you know, be two fisted and uh, and, and and the fact that violence gives us the shakes, you know, and this idea that if you took a sort of modern pacifist couple and did terrible things to them, how long would it be before they either snapped or lashed out and fought back. And so we take this lovely married couple, Maya and Jamie, who are just delightful, very right on, you know, and uh, make their lives an absolute misery until they they snap. And um, yeah, it's it's lots of fun. <laughs> it's very dark. And Colm, Colm Meany plays a guy called Daddy Whelan, who is the patriarch of a local family who uh, come around to do some building work on their house. And actually, as with a lot of... Monster movies—the real horror isn't in the monsters; it's in the humans. The humans mm. are uh, pretty, pretty terrible, <laughs> and um, yeah, it goes from there. Has lots of fun.
0: It, it kind of looks like straw dogs with goblins.
1: Oh, well, it's interesting you should say that. We we did pitch it as straw dogs meets gremlins. That was very much the uh, the the sort of X meets Y pitch for that for that story. So much so that people are now. Quoting that and the articles that have come up out about it, so uh, yeah, it's interesting to hear that.
0: Yeah, I look forward to watching it. Just to ask before we move on, what drew you to write? You've, you've explained the kind of the, the, the thematic background, you know, violence and, and and everything you just said. Why the why the red caps? Is that from your your Irish roots? Is is that all that stuff in the back? Is that all that stuff in kind of the imaginarium in your mind?
1: yeah 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 i mean what we used to get my i got family in cork and limerick and we used to go and um used to go for sort of family occasions and christmases and things like that and my uncle loose used to tell me ghost stories and and used to the whole fairy thing people really you know believe in it it feels very very real it's very real to people so um you know that has always been both myself and john have grown up hearing those stories and uh i've always wanted to do something fun with with red caps uh particularly because they have they do have this violent edge to, i mean yes the far derek are supposed to be playful mischievous but um we wanted them to well it once you see the film you'll realize that they're driven to do the terrible things that they do by circumstances uh and we wanted to have lots of fun with that and to be honest there's not apart from cartoon saloon you know who do those beautiful irish folklore animations mm-hmm. like song of the sea there's no one else really doing these kind of celtic uh folk stories and like i say we've we've grown up hearing these and and we wanted to to see this kind of stuff on the screen and 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 have fun with it so uh it was a great opportunity yeah i look forward to watching it um when's it going to be released well, like I said, I haven't got an exact date yet, but we're February March next year is probably most likely. Uh, so yeah, keep an eye out for that.
0: Will do. So to finish up, it would be remiss of me to not mention your own podcast, the Bestseller Experiment. <laughs> so uh, I referenced it in the intro, but can I ask you to tell the listeners a little bit more about it in case they're unaware?
1: Yeah, well, it's, um, it's five years old now, and it came out of a conversation I had with an old friend, a guy called Mark DeVoe. When Robot Overlords came out, he dropped me a line and we hadn't spoken in, in years. And he said, oh, you're living the dream. You've done a film. You've done a book. He said, I've always wanted to write a book, but never got beyond 20,000 words. And one thing led to another. We had this conversation and we decided uh, to launch the Bestseller Experiment podcast where the two of us would co-write a novel and try and self-publish it and get a, one of those orange bestseller tags on, on Amazon within 12 months. But what we, and what we said to our listeners was, beat us to it if you've got a half-written novel in a drawer if you've just never written before or you've, you just want to start from scratch then every week we interview authors and people in the publishing industry and we would learn about the craft and the business of publishing and as we all go along we can all learn something and become better writers and the most wonderful thing is Loads of them did beat us to it. I mean, we've got, I've got a whole shelf there and the books are all double stacked as well of of books sent in by listeners who have done it you know, who have actually, I mean, we've got people, we've got award winners. So there's an author called Lorna Cook, who's an RNA award winner and a best-selling author. She sold about a quarter of a million copies of her books. Um, a guy called Mike Shuckle, who uh, wrote fantasy series. He he was on the verge of giving up and he heard our episode with Joe Abercrombie, and he then got a three book deal with Gollants. Um, you know, we've got authors like Queeve McDonald. Actually, if you like the woodville books you'll like Queeves books as well i think he's he's done a book called stranger times which is kind of very 14. Oh, yeah of course yeah um, very robert rankin yeah yeah so you know we've 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 got this great legacy now of uh, alumni from the podcast so and we just kept it going because i just love talking to authors i love talking to writers and discovering you know how the and everyone's got a different story I mean, everyone has their own different route to market. So the the idea that if you do an MBA, then you'll become an author. Or if you write every day, you'll become, you know, there's no, if you listen to those early episodes, my co-presenter, Mark DeVoe, he's a life coach. And he was like, oh, let's find the seven secrets of publishing a book. And I was like, there are no seven secrets. You just have to bleed onto the keyboard. And And what we've discovered is there is no one way of doing this apart from writing and putting your heart and soul into it which sounds sounds easy but it's not as really difficult. Um so yeah that's uh, that's been the great joy of it and if you've ever thought of writing just dip in at any at any episode and you'll learn something and you know we have the most amazing guests who every week just inspire us.
0: I can completely vouch for it because you are a double inspiration to me. You both
1: uh-huh.
0: inspired the, the, the best I'll experiment both inspired me to write my own novel which I'm now about i think forty thousand words into after restarting about six months ago fantastic and and just like your books my book is also inspired by just being out and about in the local area and going for long runs and walking the dog and i and i live near a lot of a lot of like really creepy old disused quarry equipment and old quarries and buildings and, and i'm writing a nightmarish tale set among them but that you know it was only i always wanted to write always wanted to and i was that great cliche somebody who claims to be a writer who just didn't write and then (laughs) through through listening to you you guys talk i was genuinely this this is not bullshit genuinely inspired to kind of really start and i I got a few short pieces published and and it's kind of going from there but then you also um are one of the the formative inspirations behind this show because oh, wow. I thought I want to talk to authors too, and 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 now I do, and I can't yeah. believe how successful it's been. And and through a weird, a weird piece of serendipity, actually, in the next few weeks, I'm going to I'm talking to all of my inspirations. There's there's you guys. There was Mark Commode and his podcast, and
1: mm-hmm. and
0: I think next week or the week after, I've got uh, James McLean Smith from the Unexplained podcast coming on the show to talk mm-hmm. about his stuff as well. So yeah, this this net is tightening. But the best of our experiment <laughs> yes. was there right at the start for me, um, oh, and I've got to ask—I'm sure you've been asked this so many times that it's probably boring—but I, I would—I'd kick myself for not asking. You've had so many great names on the show. Are there any that stand out for you as particularly great, or dare I ask,
1: particularly not great? <laughs> oh don't make me choose we're up to 350 episodes now so it, it does get tricky um there's something very special about a lot of those early ones you know the episode with joe hill was just fantastic joe was was such good fun um and uh, he's he, he just comes in with so passion. Jabra Crumbie was great. Ben Aronovich, the episode with Ben Aronovich is called The Ben Aronovich Bollocking, where he yells at both of us, which was a real wake-up call, and actually changed the way I write, because he was having a go at us for having too long an outline, and actually after that, it did make me rethink the way I write. Um, Sarah Pimbra is always an amazing guest. She she comes on, and we did a spoiler special recently with her for a new TV show. Um Joanne Harris was was terrific really really good came up with one of the one of the phrases we love she says uh, you know I said what advice do you have for aspiring authors she says ditch the word aspiring it's bullshit if you write you're a writer and that was just terrific so you know there's there's a few there um it's uh it's it's just a joy speaking to different authors every week so it's difficult to pick out a favorite but those have stood the test of time 5 years later so
0: I mean, they're all authors that I read and love. Um, Joe mm. Abercrombie is just the greatest always, living fantasy yeah, writer. Terrific... Uh, if anyone listens to this, hasn't read Joe Abercrombie, um, do, essentially. He's wonderful. But yeah, yeah, basically, I spend most of my time just kind of coming up with these absolute mental contortions to think, how can I get that person onto a horror podcast? <laughs> you know, like, I keep thinking, like how can I get David Nichols to fit the bill for a horror podcast, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that, because I just want to speak to them all. Um, Sarah Pinborough, I'm going to invite on. Um, She doesn't know this yet, but I'm going to invite her on to talk about her (laughs) new book, Insomnia. But believe it or not, I don't know the twist to Behind Her Eyes. I've managed to avoid that all these years. So I, uh, I, I, yeah, I don't know what that twist is yet.
1: Well, you're in for a treat. That's what I'm going to say.
0: Well, I mean, that seems to be the perfect, moment to segue into the two questions i always conclude these interviews with um the first being could
1: you recommend
0: a a single book that you think my listeners should read and tell us why
1: okay um for for something like this i i i imagine it's you know you get a lot of people saying, "Oh, read some James Herbert, read some Stephen King, or that kind of thing." I'm gonna I'm gonna put my money where the, my mouth is and recommend someone who's listened to the podcast and has had a go at it. So uh, you won't have heard of this author necessarily, a guy called Andrew Chapman. He's just self-published a book called Jack's Game, which he pitches as it meets Ready Player One. Uh, he's been, he, and he writes proper proper horror. So uh, check out Jack's Game by Andrew Chapman, one of many authors who has been inspired by the Bestseller experiment podcast and run with it and published and put a book out there so uh, yeah I'm going to recommend that
0: that is brilliant that's that's what I want I uh, I don't need anyone else to recommend the shining or hill house or <laughs> anything like that you know consider those consider those books read yeah I want yeah, I yeah, want yeah. new names that and help as much as I can so thank you for that I will put that brilliant. in the show notes for people who who were absent minded or or didn't hear it properly and uh, and my last question what truly scares you, mark
1: um I mean it's I think it's just not having enough time and I'm ten years older than you and I can I can warn you now Neil over the next ten years some bastard leans on the accelerator in your life I mean my son has suddenly gone off to university you know my daughter is suddenly... You know, uh, a grown-up animator and YouTuber and stuff, and I'm like, they were five seconds ago, they were babies sitting in their own shit, and now they've got opinions and everything. So it's it's not having enough time, and uh, I'm I'm lucky in that I can now do this as a full-time job. So I am now, you know, I I I, I dictate my own day, and the first thing I do every morning breakfast then come into this room and i write solidly you know it's the first thing i do because i was made redundant uh three years nearly three years ago and weirdly it's one of the best things that ever happened to me and because it made me think okay i'm running out of time i've got to do this you don't get a second chance you only get go around you know this sun so many times so um it it used when I had a day job and I'd spend my whole day doing spreadsheets. I would wake up in the middle of the night with having panic attacks about <laughs> what you know. I, I I have this fantasy that you know I'm dying at the age of 100 and 103, surrounded by grandchildren, and I was never going to be saying, Oh, I wish I'd had more time to do spreadsheets, but I I do wish I had more time to write stories. It's, it's the ideas are never a problem, but finding time to write the bloody things is um it's the thing that that keeps me awake at night
0: well thank you because that is exactly the kick up the arse i need <laughs> i uh, i i quit my job and went freelance to have time to write and and this podcast yeah. has grown to be all encompassing which is a very worthwhile endeavor oh yeah but i uh i do need to get back to to putting words on paper so yeah yeah, All right. It's quite fitting come from you as well because you're the person who got me writing in the first place. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So thank you. <laughs> anyway, after as I say, after you've inspired me so much, I'm just delighted to have the the option to talk to you. I'm hoping that if I can sell one book to one of my listeners, I I, I hope to because um, after a year of horror, after two years of horror, and after a really you know, horror-centric Halloween month. I, I think people having a, having a go at the, the uh, Witch of Woodville, it might be a nice cleansing balm for the soul before they go back into <laughs> grimmer things. So, yeah, everyone try these books out. Start with The Crow Folk, that's number one, and then Babes in the Wood, number two. Beyond that, all I can say is, Mark Stay, thank you for talking Scared.
1: My absolute pleasure, Neil. Thank you for speaking to me.
0: I feel refreshed by that conversation, and after reading Mark's books, to be honest. Like I say, in in the immediate post-Halloween hiccup, it seemed a good time to allow a slight loosening of the reins on this podcast, and and despite their seeming innocence, The Witches of Woodville do have deeper, darker things to say about the state of the world, both then and now. Don't get me wrong, these are not horror novels. I'm not going to lie to you and say they are. They are intentionally light. You aren't going to come away from these books shaken or with any great emotional impact. They aren't designed that way. Instead, they are delightful little tales, perfect to either kind of while away a lazy rainy afternoon by the fire or to give to someone who doesn't usually read darker stuff. They'd make a fantastic gateway drug for a budding young horror reader or the more nervously inclined. They actually took me right back to the reading of my own youth. Mark has captured that timeless English charm of the writers that we both mentioned in our conversation. Roald Dahl, but without the nasty edge. Enid Brighton without the racism or the debatably unintentional dick jokes. And before anyone starts yelling cancel culture, by the way, I have a great deal of love for both Roald Dahl and Enid Blyton. They'll forever be close to my reader's heart but let's not pretend they weren't without their issues. If you've got a curious kid, or if you just want to enjoy a comforting, cosy read before winter really bites, try The Witches of Woodville. I think you'll romp through them in no time. There are quite a few things to pick up on in our conversation. First of all, to my non-British listeners, or anyone born this century, apologies for the profusion of obscure 80s TV characters. Honestly, though, You have to see these monsters to believe them. I don't know who was in charge of commissioning kids TV in the mid 80s. But they need investigating far more closely than the people making the video nasty horror movies ever did. We mentioned Bagpuss and Wurzel Gummage and my own personal nightmare fuel, Grot Bags. And all I can do is upload some photos to Twitter alongside this episode. Go and have a look and maybe you'll get some insight into why so many people of my age in the UK have got deeply embedded neuroses. That said, I'd still rather watch all of that stuff on hard rotation than endure another hour of Downton Abbey. I stand by what I said. Downton Abbey is porn for the socially aspirational, and people who've quite literally never ever done their own ironing, and one day... Will look back and blame it for the fall of civilization. Dear overseas listeners, if you watch Downton Abbey and think that's what England is like, or was ever like, you're wrong. If you want a fantasy England, I'd suggest reading Mark's books instead. And speaking of fantasy England, I'd actually like to ask what you guys think about my point regarding folk horror. Once again, I'm, I'm talking here about using it as a sort of proper noun so to speak, a kind of capitalised phrase that denotes a specific kind of Western European storytelling. It feels both right and problematic to me, and and I'm wondering what you guys think. I don't want to ruffle feathers, I'm genuinely interested, especially as I've gone on the record so many times as being keen on wider folk traditions, being a necessary new stage for the horror genre. Let me know your thoughts on, on this and anything else. You can reach me as ever at TalkScaredPod on Twitter. I'm always there or just a buzzing iPhone notification away. Alternatively, you can follow me on Instagram at talking underscore scared underscore Pod. And I put a nice set of photos up there from the weekend because I went on this self-organized marathon up Yorkshire's three biggest peaks. And the conditions were so bad that I genuinely thought I may die. I'm not even joking, I got very panicky didn't help that I'd been playing around with a sheep skull that we found and which I later believed to have cursed me I survived and the photos are there to tell the tale so yeah have a look lastly you can email me directly at talking at gmail.com I always love getting your emails and I try and respond to each and every one if I haven't ever got back to you if you wrote to me send another one chase me up a big thanks to the latest Patreon subscribers, John Coles and Seth. Huge thanks, guys. I hope you enjoy the bonus content and come join the book club. Anyone else who wants extra bonus episodes or access to the book club or who just wants to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com talkingscaredpod talking And that link is in the show notes. All support, no matter how small, is massively appreciated. Reviews have slowed down, I've got almost to 50, and they've all been really positive, so thanks a ton. But if anyone can take a moment to review the show on Apple Podcast, you'd be really helping get the word out there for those who haven't found us yet. Last thing to say is do check out Mark's podcast, The Best Seller Experiment. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's a much bigger show than mine, it's much more established, but if you haven't found it, I would heartily recommend listening to it. But otherwise, I think that's enough of me putting the world to rights for one week. Maybe it was my near-death experience at the weekend, or it could be Mark's books, but I feel a strange positivity come over me as the nights draw in. I think the future will be bright, actually, starting next week with the monarch of horror anthologies herself, Ellen Datlow. That is an episode not to be missed if you have any interest in the current state of the genre. But until then drink lashings of ginger beer, put the cream on the scone before the jam and don't summon demons if you can help it. Read good books and remember it's good to be scared.